Gavin told us the moment he knew. Game on. Weeknights from six. On two FM. Back today from three. Big thanks to the two Johnnies. It is Wednesday. Perfect. Thank you. And you're listening to Game Lovely. Coming up today, Keith Tracy is in studio watching Manchester United against Galatasaray. We're going to get to him very shortly for an update. In golf, Luke Donald will lead Europe's bid to retain the Ryder Cup in 2025. Greg Allen will join us to discuss. Plus, Damien Lawler will round up all the Gaelic games news stories of the week. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or find us on X at Game On 2FM. Game On on 2FM. Uh, welcome along. As I mentioned, Keith Tracy is watching the big game between Manchester United and Galatasaray. How's it going, Keith? <laughs> Bruno Fernandes <laughs> just scored an absolute scorcher to make it 2 0 to Manchester United. It's it's a beautiful goal. The Garnacho goal against Everton is is absolutely world class but this is a brilliant strike as well it's one of those where he hits the top of the ball it starts off over the crossbar and just dips at the last minute it's a brilliant brilliant goal it's a great game so far Marie Galatasaray probably funny enough have been been just as good as United in the in the opening exchanges but just haven't been anywhere near as ruthless as United so Bruno Fernandes has scored the second goal Garnacho got the first goal and his his goal was a lovely finish as well. They walked the ball really well into Hoyland. Hoyland gives it back to Fernandez. Fernandez gets it out to Garnacho and he's at an angle, but he just fires it into the roof of the net with his left foot. So 2 0 to United, but it hasn't been comfortable, but it's a comfortable scoreline. Yeah, I'm just watching the Bruno Fernandez goal there and uh, listening to him, like the captain now of Manchester United, listening to him all week talking about the bits of pressure that he was an under and how he has to lead by example. He certainly did that with that finish, Keith. He did, yeah. And even uh, like I wouldn't be a, a big fan of Bruno Fernandez in terms of the captaincy at Manchester United. A wonderful footballer of all the time in the world from in, in terms of playing a game of football. But he's had two huge tests this week. Uh, Everton and Goodison Park. Obviously, we all know how annoyed the uh, the Everton fans are with the ten point deductions. So that was a real hostile environment that he went into. When he came out, you know, doing really well, gave Rashford his penalty to go and win 3-0. And within the first 20 minutes of this game in, in Istanbul, a real melting pot of the game, real real uh, hot atmosphere, he's just scored a scorcher. So real real captain mm. performances uh, 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 from Bruno Fernandes at the minute. Sometimes it takes people a while to grow into it or to settle or to understand what they need to do in their role. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I would give him a little bit of time, but I don't think talent, you know, I think you need an awful lot more than talent to be able to captain a side. And obviously Bruno Fernandes is all the all the talent in the world. It's just the, you know, the, the, the going down a little bit easy, throwing his hands in the air, the way he t- gives out to referees. You know, I think if you're going to be a United captain, you need to have a little bit more about you. And look, again, he's he is learning on the job. He's getting better all the time. And where I said I wouldn't be a big fan of him as the captain, the last two, uh, the last two asset tests, he's coming up smelling the roses. There was a shout for a possible penalty as well for Galatasaray. Yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised if that had been given. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to get into the whole VAR thing, but given how how Newcastle were punished last night for a, a penalty, that's never a penalty. It comes up up off Liveramento's hip and hits his arm. It's never ever a penalty. But McTominay, he's running out, and it does hit him in the arm. It's going towards goal. My initial my initial reaction would be it's not a penalty, but given how how flimsy VAR have been lately, I thought this could be given, but they didn't even look at it, which for me again is just VAR being a little bit reactive because they gave it the one last night that's so so flimsy, the bar's probably a little bit higher tonight. I think that's what really bothers people about VAR though, is that inconsistency that you're looking at something, you can find a comparison, you can give an example of where it happened before and then the opposite decision could also be made. Yeah, and, and there's rules in place. You know, the the one rule that I, I believe it was Gareth Southgate went and he he met with with Howard Webb and a, a couple of lads had a, had a bit of a chat moving forward about the handball rule. And and one of the rules that came out of it was if the ball hits you in any part of your body and then pops up to hit you on the hand, it can't be a handball 
but the refs just chose to ignore that rule last night and decided that it's, it's all about the proximity and it has hit him in the hand look sometimes it can hit you in the hand and when I was playing football it was is it a delivery handball the only way you get a penalty is a deliberate handball and now it's just run into the box and chip it off somebody's hand and hope for the best and you know I, I, I've played the game at a professional level I've played in every every professional league in England but I genuinely haven't a clue now when it goes into the box <laughs> whether it is or isn't a penalty That's amazing if you haven't a clue then uh, the likes of me are in big trouble <laughs> So you've played in every professional league level in England Have you ever played in Turkey? Never played in Turkey and judging by the, how hostile <laughs> it is at the minute I, I'm quite thankful but I did do it on a rainy Tuesday night in Stoke on, Oh so. well I mean there you go <laughs> It looks amazing though they have um all raised signs that, so that the words welcome to hell are spelled out in the crowd and it just looks like the most amazing spectacle now I know the weather was horrendous throughout the day and I was watching Sky Sports News earlier on and they weren't sure if it was going to go ahead the ball wasn't rolling properly but it looks alright now yeah it looks okay and, and to be fair there, there is a couple of mistakes out there a couple of defenders coming charging in and not being able to stop quite as quickly as they would like but as a spectator a neutral spectator it's, it makes a better game for us a lot of defenders make some, making mistakes but I think Gallagher Tassaroy and Manchester United at the minute are probably better going forward than they are defensively so both teams are going to go and try and win the game as as opposed to you know soaking up the pressure and trying to hit it that way but as I said United 2-0 on the scoreline but Galatasaray are well in this game Now I know you don't want to talk about VAR but let's talk about Newcastle's performance uh, a lot of luck was heartbreak at the end because it looked like they were going to get a win and have held off that PSG side that were attacking relentlessly and then the penalty happened and Mbappe happened and they had to, to settle for the draw but you'd have to think they will have taken a lot from it? Yeah, you would think they, they will take a lot from it but you know when that happens, Marie, when you've been the better team throughout the game and look, Nick Pope made some good saves in the game it wasn't a totally one-sided game but Newcastle going there will think we'll have to ride a look at times Nick Pope will have to make some decent saves and he did that a lot of boys turned up I thought Kieran Trippier against Mbappe was largely very very good kept them kept them really quiet Dembele on the opposite side really really quiet so and the one thing that really grates on me is I'm listening to Pope the Newcastle the Newcastle goalkeeper after the game and he, he's obviously very very annoyed with the decision and he, he basically said I'm trying to get myself into the English team here and this is a big night for Newcastle a mm. win away to Paris Saint-Germain one of the the European giants and all of a sudden it's been tainted and it's nothing to do with Newcastle it isn't a penalty it's never ever a penalty and look you won't hear me coming to the defence of Newcastle too often but for me they deserved their big night their big away night in the Champions League they should have had it they they performed excellently to a man and very very I, I would say annoyed but you know I'm just I'm sort of used to it now I'm coming dull yeah. to it that fire just have way too much to say you look, I mean look at poor Wolves how many times has it come back to, to hurt yeah. Wolves as well in the Premier League Gary O'Neill's comments actually um, now that you mentioned Pope there and, and he's talking about uh, reputations been damaged livelihoods been affected and, and look are, are we getting to that level or are they getting are people getting a bit carried away well, people can get carried away, but again, when you look at Gary O'Neill, and I bring Wolves up because it, Wolves have been hit by this, you know, time yeah. and time again. And there was four big decisions in the Wolves and Ful Fulham game on Monday night, and all four went against them. And Gary O'Neill, he's held himself really well because I know if I was the manager and, and cameras were getting put in my face after these decisions, I'd have lost my head by now. But Gary O'Neill has held himself really, really well. But the one point he brought he brought up that I thought was was quite telling. He said that there was four big decisions in the game, two penalties ahead, but and. 
uh, Tim Ream should have been sent off in his opinion them four decisions went against him I think if that's a referee refereeing the game there might be one goes against you two goes against you then it, the, the most human thing in the world then is to think I've gave two bad decisions against these already I'd be a bit more lenient but VAR doesn't see it like that VAR sees the replay and, and puts it into black and white and for me you know there was a headbutt in the game VAR has, has been wrong a couple of times so yeah, I, I, I think Gary O'Neill was very harsh to lose his job at Bournemouth and I hope the, the toy turns from because the look, you know, it just hasn't been on his side. Yeah, and he added to those points and said that Monday night has finally turned him against Farr. I think he's had enough now and um, it is understandable just given the the decisions that have gone against them. Man City had to come back from two down to beat Leipzig. They're not used to being in that position too often. No, and you could see I, I, I was flicking in between the two games and the, the Manchester City that we know didn't really turn up in the first half. Although they had chances, they just seemed a little bit blunt, a little bit lacklustre in the tie. You know, we're going through anyway, it doesn't really matter, but Pep Guardiola obviously got a hold on them at half time, gave them a bit of a bit of an ear bash, and then they came out and they, they won the second half 3 0. And it, it's exactly the Manchester the Manchester City we know. They can be so ruthless, and that second half will just send, send shivers to the spine of everybody else in the Champions League that they can turn up. Because Leipzig aren't a bad team, they, they proved that in the first half, but to come out in the second 45 and just hammer them 3 0 is uh, just Manchester City flexing their muscles. Yeah, uh, let's have a little chat about um, Arsenal because um, they are in action, of course, tonight against Lons. But given the Brentford result and I guess Kai Havertz uh, looking like he's spurring into to action, do you think that the Champions League is going to be a competition that they could realistically win? I'm not too sure. I, I, I think there's, it, it's hard to see past Manchester City, Real Madrid, PSG, Bayern Munich. There's some big, big boys in, in the Champions League. But I think, to be realistic, I, I, I listened to Mikel Arteta's uh, news conference before the game tonight and he's saying, you know, domestically we're, we're sort of back on the scene. We're in the Champions League football. We're one of the big boys. We finished second last season. So now it's about getting them building blocks in place in the Champions League. So I, I don't expect us to jump straight to a semi-final or a final or, you know, win the thing. But I expect us to throw a few punches I expect us to be competitive and if we get a decent draw quarterfinals semi-finals possibly but I do think if we go that deep I think uh, the Premier League will suffer because of it Yeah so do you think that they're better off or does it matter like I know we have these conversations about Manchester City and what they're better off doing they're better off going for everything but um, is it a case that either or you'd be happy enough with yeah, I think once we turn the corner in the new year, January, the, the back end of January, I think uh, Arteta will be will be weighing up what sort of what sort of teams they're going to play in the knockout, what sort of route it is. If we're still in the race in the in the Premier League, because you would think that Manchester City will start pl- splitting their squad between Champions League games and Premier League games and be still very very strong. So Arsenal don't don't quite have that luxury. We probably have. 14, 14 players that we really, really trust. A couple of youngsters with some with some question marks over them still. So, yeah, look, I, I don't think Arsenal can compete on both fronts. I don't even think they can compete with Manchester City over 38 games. But I do think we'll be the best of the rest, and we'll be hopefully be there or thereabouts. But City have to <laughs> City have to underperform for Arsenal to win the league or anybody else. For you don't matter. like getting your hopes up anyway, though. I don't, but I'm an Arsenal fan. It's the hope that kills me. So I try and eradicate the hope and keep myself <laughs> realistic. Uh, just before we uh, take a break, a word on Queeveen Kelleher. So he's going. To start some of the Liverpool upcoming games because of Alisson Becker uh, being injured, looks like he's going to be out for two weeks at least. Uh, good news for for Callagher, and I think it's probably what Irish football fans want to see anyway to see him between the posts for Liverpool. Yeah, it's great news, and and Gavin Bazunu will uh, will be thinking, my God, I hope he doesn't play too much because <laughs> obviously he'll be a Premier League player now. And 
just to come away from that Marie Hakim Ziyech has just scored for Galatasaray he's made it 2-1 it's a, it's a free kick and it's one of those free kicks where Onanis took a step behind the Manchester United wall thinking he's going to go up and over he doesn't he goes goalkeeper side Onanis took that step behind the wall and before he knows it it's, it's past him it's really really bad goalkeeping on the eye and I'm sure that a lot of people will come out and say it's bad goalkeeping it should be saved but as I said Galatasaray back in this game Right so we've got uh, 29 minutes played three goals it should be a, a good night whatever about the weather it doesn't seem to be affecting them at all uh, we're going to take a very quick break uh, stay with us though we'll be chatting Gaelic Games with Damien Lawler we also have golf with Greg Allen Game on on 2FM Welcome back. We are going to turn our attention to boxing. There has been a little bit of a a story brewing over the last few days and it has come to um, a head today with the president of the Irish Athletic Boxing Association, Jerry O'Mahony, saying that the association plans to end its boycott of Russian boxers and allow Mullingar youngster John Dunhu to fight for a medal at the Junior World Championships on Thursday. And to talk us through this story, um, I am delighted to say that Chris McNulty, boxing journalist, joins us on the line. Chris, I might get you to bring us back actually to to the start and and to this story because I know it hasn't just been related to John Donoghue that there's other boxers who's been affected by the boycott of Russian and Belarusian boxers. Yeah, well, uh, I suppose in in these championships, the IBA World Juniors, um, Irish bandwidth, Tegan Farley has already been withdrawn um, from those. And at the recent European under-22s, there were three Irish boxers, Cian Hederman, Evelyn Aguero, um, who actually won a bronze medal and was den- denied the chance to fight um, for a silver or gold medal because she she was drawn subsequently against a Russian boxer and Gavin Rafferty were withdrawn. Now, the withdrawals go back... Um, if you remember earlier in the year, Ireland didn't send teams to the World Elite mm. Male or Female Championships um, due to issues. Um, you know, a, a lot of this is, is related um, to, to, to issues with um, the Russian-Ukraine conflict. But it has to be remembered that the, that the IBA who are running these championships in Armenia were also running the World Elites and they're deep rooted issues with the IABA as we have discussed, Marie, on this programme on a number of occasions. And at the time, the IABA said uh, in a statement that the IBA's practices and activities weren't of a standard required to secure the sport's future. And of course, there's all sorts of um, difficulties regarding boxing and, and its sort of ongoing um, inclusion in the Olympic cycle. But arising out of all of this, there, there was a worldwide protocol essentially agreed by 36 sports ministers. And the ramifications of that were that many countries, Ireland uh, among them, essentially agreed a boycott of Russian and Belarusian athletes. Um, Now, at these championships in Armenia, Ireland have been an outlier in that they've been the only country um, to actually carry out a boycott of withdrawn athletes from competition against Russian and Belarusian fighters. Um, And with the result, there there was a a comment made by the Minister of State for Sport, Thomas Byrne, um, who basically said that there would be no ramifications for any of the individuals and mentioned how the IABA are an autonomous organisation and that there would be no instruction nor sanction from either the Department of Sport or for Sport Ireland where the IABA to put any of its boxers in against Russian or Belarusian fighters. So then this this moved on then from um, Thomas Burns' words and then it moved on to, to Jerry O'Mahony and what happened then? 
Yeah, well, I suppose arising out of that, the the IABA sought clarification in terms of, because, you know, bearing in mind the IABA is heavily funded by both Sport Ireland and the government. I mean, around about 90% of its of its income comes from from those sources. So the IABA has has since basically sought um, clarification on whether or not there would be sanctions imposed. And out of that, the the IABA um, sent an official letter to the team manager in Yerevan, um, Anna Moore. Um, it was a very short, um, very short email that basically said that they were now allowing Irish boxers to compete against Russia and, and Belarus for the for, for the remainder of the of the championships. So that's obviously excellent for John Donoghue, and he's going to fight for a medal at these Junior World Championships on Thursday. Does he have a good chance? He does, and it's also good news possibly for for two other Irish boxers. There are actually six Irish boxers now who are in quarterfinal action tomorrow, and two of those, Christian Doyle and Patrick Kelly, were they to win tomorrow's, there is the possibility that Patrick Kelly could then be drawn to face a Belarusian and Christian Doyle to face a Russian. So there's great news for these boxers going forward, and and it's great news because, you know, Marie, these these are young, young teenage boxers, and you know, all, all of these sort of discussions are, are held way above their probably their understanding, even you know. And it's probably easy for us to just take this in a sporting context, but but in that context, it's it's superb news for these boxers in that they get to fight for their medals. But I think in all of this, there, there, there's deeper questions here now in terms of the IABA's approach because. Thomas Byrne was able to come out and clarify and he was answering a question from Chris Andrews, the TD, that absolutely there was no sort of sanction, there was no instruction. Now that goes against everything that we were all led to believe that, that this was the reason it was suggested that if the IABA put any of its boxers in against um representatives of Russia or Belarus that, that they faced the possibility of maybe having their funding cut or even completely withdrawn. So the fact that that's not now the case, I mean, it would lead you to wonder if the IABA sought this clarification before going to Armenia and if not, why not? It also brings into question the decision of withdrawing Kian Hederman, Evelyn mm-hmm. Agaro and, and withdrawing Evelyn Agaro after she had won a place on the podium. And, and Gavin Rafferty from the recent European under 22s. It, it does bring into question a lot of those. And, you know, if, if you remember at the time in February when the Irish boxers were withdrawn from the world elites, Dr. Una May did say at the time that the IABA wasn't under orders. So there's a lot of questions there, I think, for the IABA and its people to answer in terms of coming to these decisions and the how and why behind those decisions. OK, well, we'll be keeping an eye on that over the next few weeks. Uh, Chris McNulty, journalist, as always, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed on that. We're going to take a very quick break. It is still Manchester United 2, Galatasaray 1. Game on on 2FM. Welcome back. Keith Tracy is with me in studio and he is glued to Man United and Galatasaray. Still 2-1 and it's been end-to-end, Keith. Yeah, it's a b- brilliant open game. It's it's not what you'd expect uh, down the business end of the Champions League group stage, but it's such an open game. Both teams are going for it and Bowie, the, the Galatasaray right-back, has just been just been yellow-carded for coming through the back of Garnacho, so he's walking a tightrope and Luke Shaw up against uh, Ziyech is a, a really good battle and Zaha against Wan-Bissaka on the other side. 
side really good 1v1 battles happening all over the place chances galore and tackles flying in what more could you want? Absolutely nothing Keith I'll leave you to it for a few <laughs> minutes uh, we're going to turn our attention to hurling now it has been a difficult few weeks for the game, that's for sure. So Damien Lawler caught up with Martin Fogarty, former National Hurling Development Manager, to hear what he thinks could be done to help the game. I suppose um, it's, it's been a rough few weeks for five counties in particular that are that are in what I used to call the, wind, the wilderness of hurling. But, um, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully things will work out there and those teams will be left in the National League. But, you know, maybe there's... Um, Maybe there's something good to come out of it in that there's probably now an awareness all over the country as to the challenges faced by not just those five counties, but what I would say 13 to 14 counties in that famous line from Galway to Dublin. And, you know, you'd be just excluding Antrim and excluding Antrim because Antrim are, are, a, are a very strong hurling county and to have somewhere in the region of 24 hurling clubs. So... You know, any any issues about developing Antrim hurling are probably, I suppose, within Antrim to have the number of clubs and if, if they can get the right people and the right drive and, and, and the right enthusiasm, I have no doubt that Antrim can come up several more notches. But take the other counties, I think people all over the country are now starting to realise that it's not easy to be a hurler in Cavan with three hurling clubs. It's, it's, it's almost impossible in Fermanagh with just one adult hurling club. And you can go on Leitrim with two and Longford with three and so on. Now, Mayo have been doing extremely well, but kind of up to last year, the year before, they were working off of four adult hurling clubs. But I think last year a, a, a former Games promotion officer has, has told me that there are actually ten adult teams in Mayo this year. And that's that's the crux of it. Now, you can look down at Carlow and Kerry and, and Wicklow, we'll say, and counties like that, that that are not strongholds of hurling either. But the solution in those counties, again, is, is to grow more hurling and get more hurling teams. But it's a lot easier for them to do that because they're all bordering counties that have plenty of hurling. If we take Carlow, that are next door to me, you know, it's easy to get matches in, in Carlow because you can slip into Wexford, slip into Kilkenny, slip up to Dublin. Whereas up the country, if you're in Mayo or in Sligo or... or God forbid it if you're in Dunglow and Donegal. You probably travel an hour, if not an hour and a half, to get one match. And um, then the next problem is, you know, one of, one of, the, um, one of the aims of the GAs and association is to provide meaningful games for all clubs and for all players. Now, that's, that's next to impossible up the country because if you have only six clubs, you know, within a radius of, of, of 100 kilometres, how do you do it? And this is, I keep coming back to saying... This thing will all live and die on, on, I suppose, the little games that the Hurling people have organised, as in the Tano competitions and the adult version of Coquillan, which are essentially cross-border, cross-provincial competitions, where every club is guaranteed at least six to seven games, and then a semi-final and a final. And if, if those games can be provided, and provided properly, and really the boat pushed out to make them really meaningful... Now, the challenges are getting getting a balance, you know, because in some of those regions you'll have a very good team and you'll have a very weak team. So provision has to be made that if your team is very strong and mine is very weak, we'll come to some agreement that you'll play maybe the subs or if you don't have subs, maybe swap over some of your players to mine. But you're getting games. That's the, that's the, the kernel of it. And if the games are there and the games are well run, well, then you have something to build into. Like, there's no point in, in we'll say... Leitrim with, with two clubs going to six clubs if they have no matches you have to have the competition and then it's like a circle you need 
to run those competitions you need more bodies on the ground and I'm talking about hurling staff and those hurling staff in my mind have to be on one team not half a man working in Leitrim a half a man working in Sligo maybe one in Longford they have all to come in together and, and let it be if there's 13 or 14 counties up there you need on average two per county so you need about 28 You're talking a hurling task force more or less Oh unbelievably essentially yeah that come together and to see the problems and to see the solutions because the solutions are already there now it will cost of course it will cost because these clubs need a little bit of um, support and I'm not particularly talking money but I'm talking about you know monetary value I'm talking about maybe equipment and I would have said for example 3,000 euros worth of equipment based on your team takes part in Tarnog under 13 you get 500 worth of equipment under 15 the same under 17 the same adult the same accountable and oh 100% and so that's that's the incentive to actually plan the competitions properly not give walkovers not take walkovers and in some way that then you know that that material will go towards the big travel costs that these clubs have that's the first part of it and then you need in the middle of that then is that in in each of these areas there's a concerted effort made to try and build more units. I say units as opposed to clubs. And You mean regional structures could come in here too? Without a shadow of doubt. You know, you, you need, for example, regions are better than counties because what's the point if you, if you have a club in the north of Leitrim right, and, and they're close to Sligo, they might as well be involved in that group. And if you have if a if club down in, in, in the south, maybe they'll, they'll link in with, with, say, a bit of Longford or a bit of Ross Common. So that, that makes more sense. That will take a change of mindset, but you're saying it's something that's necessary. Sure, so it's very simple, really. You know, we'll say if, if, you, if you have up in that area at the moment, you might, you might have about 13 or 14 hurling staff. Now, that needs to be doubled at least. And instead of looking after a county, you're looking after a region. Um, but that's, that's, a small, that's a small detail. So that was Martin Fogarty, former National Hurling Development Manager, speaking there. And now RT Sports, Damien Lawler joins us on the line. Damien, really interesting listening to Martin there. And he does have some ideas. And we very much needed ideas, I think, after the debate over the last week or so about hurling and uh, the the counties that looked like they were going to be excluded from the game for quite some time. Um, Just talk us through what you think needs to be done, Damien, and just a reaction to what Martin was saying. Yeah, so first of all, anyway, like um, whether whether anybody meant it or not, the events of the last few weeks uh, have really caused a friori, uh, Marie. And I think when, when I got the story originally, I was, think, I was thinking about the ramifications of it. And I, I knew straight away when I, when I got, kind of got the document, straight after the, the CCCC kind of meeting, um, or was it a central council meeting? I knew straight away that it, my gut feeling was that this wouldn't, probably see the light of day and I think you even asked me a few weeks ago and I I think I said your players want to play and as the weeks have passed it's only gathered more and more wind and I I feel that it's shone a light on the plight of the weaker counties Um, for for all the money that's probably been spent by counties on on GEA preparation I say little over a quarter has gone on hurling and for some counties that's probably just too much they can't afford it given that there's no gate receipts or there's not enough hurling clubs coming so a couple of things are coming out of this uh, most pertinently on Saturday I, I can't see that that matter even being well it won't be successful whether it's even voted on or not I don't know um, I think that there will be a discussion because these counties are losing money and there's no way, sh- way of sugarcoating that so what I think will happen to be a debate on Saturday at Central Council I say those five counties will be given five years to ensure that they have at least five clubs and if they don't have five clubs in that period well then maybe alternative action would be taken Marie so I think that's the this is only my own guesswork, but I do feel 
that the matter will be discussed. I don't think there'll be a vote on it. And I do think that a plan will be put forward because this issue is not going away. Um, the, the, the county boards went to the CCCC over the last 18 months, raising their fears and their concerns. If they may not have communicated that back to the players, but based on what they heard then, the CCCC came up with this proposal. Now, it won't probably go any further than where it's at, but that doesn't mean the issue is going to go away, and particularly if integration is going to happen, you know, the, 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 the outgoings are going to be even more significant. So that's the way I see it at the minute. So Mart Foji believes that the inter the inter-county game is okay by and large, but the big problem he feels is club hurling and that yeah. Yeah. it has to start at the bottom, build the clubs, build the game up at that level and then the knock-on effect will be that there will be more players, better quality and all the rest. It sounds fairly simple, Damien, but we know well, these things never are. it's not glamorous. Yeah. No, it's not glamorous. Like, and he, he took a stockpile of it there and he probably identified 12 counties that have problems of varying natures. Like, Antrim's problem would be that they can't get games really because of their geographical location, but their infrastructure hurling-wise is actually okay. Uh, other counties are maybe situated in the Midlands, close to other nearby hurling counties, but they don't have enough clubs, uh, e.g. Carlow. So I think every county, if you take it in isolation, Marie, they all have their own issues. Martin is trying to see that a, a kind of a tailor-made plan be drawn up for the counties uh, with the issues that need most clubs and more adult players. And I think really, if... if for some of those counties, you could nace, you could use the NACE hurling club, the NACE GA club as an example. Um, Kildare wouldn't be an out-and-out hurling county, mm-hmm. although pockets of it have always been there, but NACE have won five county titles. They've won an All-Ireland Intermediate title. They got beaten for the second year in a row there in the Leinster Championship in the semi-final stage last weekend. Uh, they're craving a breakthrough. They're craving a Leinster final. They're craving the chance to be the first Kildare team to ever get to a Leinster senior hurling final. But what do they do? They play un- until 13 years of age. They go and play in Dublin alongside playing domestically in Kildare. From 13 to 17, they go to Kilkenny and they got internship there uh, into the underage leagues and championships down there. So uh, they play in Kildare as well. So they, they actively go seeking tournaments all over the country. And Martin is encouraging maybe that to happen. If, if there's a team on the sligo Leitrim border, he'd nearly see a regional team coming together to make up the numbers uh, rather than maybe going to the far side of the county to, to play a team there. So, he, he you know, he's probably done that at, at Thorn and Cucullin level whereby regional teams are playing cross-border leagues. And I think Tommy Walsh made a comment years ago, players just want to play, whether it's tournaments or exhibitions. I think this is probably the way forward. Again, it sounds simple, Marie, and it's not glamorous, but what you're doing there is you're building participation in the game, you're building it up. Like uh, It can be done, Marie. Look at the success that Tralee CBS had in the schools hurling yesterday. A massive, massive result for them. Uh, look at Round Towers in Kildare forming in a hurling club and, and already making, uh, making inroads. Unfortunately, it comes down to human resources. It comes down to having a few bob to buy equipment and get people up and running. Uh, and it comes down to giving it time. But if it's done right, mm. you can slowly gather momentum and you can slowly build up enough numbers at juvenile level to make an adult team. And an adult team to me is a junior club. It doesn't have to be senior. That's my reading of it. Um, so I think Martin has been screaming off the rooftops for the last few years. He's been in full-time employment up to the last two. Uh, he, he's no longer the national hurling manager and every issue that we see that we're talking about here, he, he has seen this coming a long time out. 
that's the worrying part for me anyway, Damien, is the fact that people have been screaming from the rooftops that this problem yeah. has been known to a lot of people for a long time and nothing has been done about it. It seems we just got to this panic stage well, and now there's a reaction mm-hmm. to the panic. Yeah, because, like, I mean, at the end of the day, you're talking about taking five counties out of the National League. Now, I have sympathy for some of these counties, Marie. Like, the likes of Leitrim would have to go over and maybe play twice in the Laurie Mara Cup or play Warwickshire in the league. And then Leitrim could get done for a trip to New York as well. Now, the Connacht Council do help out with the subsidy in the football. But that's a massive overhead. So if you could take away the over the overseas travel for those mm-hmm. maybe, any of those five counties, um, you know, that, that that are under the spotlight, that would help their, their plight uh, financially as well. Um, but a lot of the counties that we mentioned are football counties predominantly. Uh, hurling wouldn't be top of their, their priority list. Um, they'd like to see maybe the, the, the football side of things you know, true, and then the hurling wouldn't be bringing in the gate receipts to be fair to the county board either. And uh, take Leitrim, a lot of their players hurling and football and Camogie ladies football would be based in Dublin. And that's a, that's a lot of money being racked up then in mileage expenses, certainly with the male element at the moment. Um, so the problems have been there. Uh, I don't think cutting them out of the league will help participation numbers um, or help their development. In fact, the contrary, if, if counties can win... Laurie Maher or Nicky Racker Cups, I think it's going to encourage more kids to play. But really, you got to get in the schools level, Marie. Mm. you got to get you got a bunch of adults now going off playing tournaments together with a like-minded view to form a club. Uh, that's what it's at. And it can be done. There's clubs being formed all the time. Um, amalgamations shouldn't be discouraged either. Uh, I see in, in weaker counties, um, um, uh, you know, amalgamated teams are coming together to play uh, other clubs. And at least there's fixtures being fulfilled. There's games being fulfilled. The numbers are out there playing. So I think you're going to have to take a... Even with five years, Marie, it's going to be hard work, but they're going to have to start somewhere because I can't see this issue going away. It'll go away for now, but the problems won't won't sort themselves out. Uh, you, you need to kind of maybe tackle it now from the grassroots level upwards. Yeah, that's for sure. And sure, look, while we're on the topic of it, Gaelic football isn't in a great place either when you think of some of the games, the club games that we've seen over the last yeah. uh, few weeks. And I know um, you spoke to Aaron Kernan and he's called for football coaching to be redesigned. What does he mean by that? Yeah, he's basically saying that there's a uniformed approach to coaching. Like, I mean, you're talking from you're talking of a guy who's won 18 county titles and he comes from a club that's famed for the way it plays football. A kicking team. Uh, you know, again, like the likes of Cora Finn, you're able to kick off your left and right at six or seven years of age. They don't have a big hoo-ha. They don't do great speeches. They just see what the teams in front of them have done. And traditionally, cross-McGlen teams have played a direct kicking ball game in um, some would say that they haven't moved with the times necessarily, but they're after winning a county title this year, so they're not doing too bad. And I have to say, I admired him for keeping that ethos. Um, but Aaron would would have made the point to me that he didn't really, the, the way the game has gone, uh, a lot of running and a lot of directing traffic and not really, not really enough focus, I guess, Marie, what he was saying. Not really enough focus in trying to how, redefine the, the, the boundaries of coaching uh, in terms of being brave enough to deliver the ball to your forwards from the half-back line. Being brave enough to let the, the full forward line have the ball quickly. Uh, be brave enough to release your half-forwards on the turn in possession from the full-back line. And by that, he means it being more direct and trying to have an outlook whereby possession and space and constricting space are not the priorities, whereas, in fact, releasing your forwards are. And I think he's just making the point that every coach is playing the safe bet Retain the ball. How do you do that? Short hand passes. Mm-hmm. Running. 
uh, more short hand passes, lateral hand passing. Uh, and the stats are there, Marie, like the 25 passes back to a goalkeeper per game these days at inter-county level. So if you see that at the highest level, it's going to be replicated at club level too. Uh, you are seeing a mini shift. The transition from defence to attack is more entertaining in the past season or two than it has been over the last five to eight. But Aaron's probably had enough of it. Uh, he's looking for maybe a rule to be brought in whereby you retain three inside forwards in the opposition half at all, all times. Uh, you know, he didn't really give a view on the hand pass back to the goalkeeper or the pass back to the goalkeeper. Um, but but I think if you looked at those two, and um, th- this is really coming from what he, what he was saying, you need to be braver with your coaching. But uh, who's going to be brave enough to start it? Because at the end of the day, if you kick a ball wide from the half-forward line, Coaches are not going to be happy with that these days. And you are have you are handing an impetus back to the opposition goalkeeper then straight away with a kick out. So that's going to take a bit of a collective mm-hmm. shift. I would say there's a rule needed there as well, Marie. Uh, if you keep three men in the inside forward line, that means you're keeping three defenders back. The more cautious coach will probably drop an extra sweeper or two. That means you've you've six to eight players back in a half. And that frees up a bit of space in the other half. You know, so so these things can be done. But there was a review lately. There wasn't many recommendations made. A lot of data came out of it. But I think Aaron's calling for recommendations to be made sooner rather than later. And it trickles down to under-12 level, whereby under-12 is probably your first level of competition in the GEA. It's been developmental, solely developmental up to then. Like, I mean, in many ways, it should be developmental up to 17. But people celebrate county championships at under-12, Marie. That's the point I'm making. And uh, you're already seeing blanket defences in there again. So... Um, yeah, I think a torch needs to be shown on that too. A couple of things. Um, one thing I've observed from watching young lads play Gaelic football, and, and you won't be surprised to hear that we talk a lot about uh, Gaelic football in my house, but um, when we come home all, from yeah. a game, we're complimenting someone that's played really well. The difference between them and the other 14 players on the pitch is usually that they're able to kick the ball over the bar. It's the simplest yeah. thing, but it isn't something that's very prominent at all at any age group anymore, I'm noticing. No, not at all. And like, I mean, for a recent game there lately, I sat down with a player and, and kind of told him how to get around a compact defence. The player was 12 years of age. Shouldn't have to be doing that, you know? Um, and, and you, you know, fundamentally, it's called Gaelic football. Uh, fundamentally, we grew up on one-on-one contests and half-forwards. Like, look at the, the 90s with the, the half-forwards that are out there, but, but balls over the bar. Now, the, the paradox here is the skill levels that have are actually outrageous at the top level. The conditioning levels are outrageous. Uh, the tactical, the coaches are playing a blinder in trying to deny space to the opposition. So I know I contradict myself. It's just, we probably, a lot of us now at this stage would like to see the creativity at the other side of it. The attacking flair yeah. needs to come back in. And I have to, I have to admit, Marie, the likes of Derry even consolidated their defence under Rory Gallagher's first year but they've been evolving and last year they were a joy to watch on the counter you know but uh, I, look the final point I make we were up in the you know the club club attendances have dropped off you know, thankfully for us the viewing figures are high that's great but from a spectator point of view not many people are, are going to club games as much anymore we watched um, who did we watch last Saturday night uh, I'm after drawing a, a blank here now we watched the Ulster semi-final between yeah. uh, Glenn and Nave Connell and a, a, a game broke out, Marie, in the last seven or eight minutes with spectacular scores from all angles. And I'm just scratching my head saying, you know, why couldn't we have this before this, the last few minutes? You know, and that's probably just something that needs to be looked at overall. 
Well, having read what um, Aaron Kernan was saying and listening to you there and some of the, the phrases that you used, transition from defence to attack and Aaron Kernan talking mm. about trying to maximise the use of the space, it got me thinking about soccer coaching. So I reckon if we just hold fire for a season and see what Jim McGuinness does with Donegal <laughs> and then decide if we still need to reinvent the game or has he, will he do it for us? Well, it's a fair point. Like, there's big expectations on Jim's shoulders because he evolved the game the last time. And will he come out all guns blazing and then go man on man and uh, press the opposition from the start? So it'll be, it'll be intriguing to see if that happens, Marie. But uh, we'll wait and see. You know, it's yeah. it's a uh, but look, there's there's always shifts. Like the back pass to the goalkeeper years ago, when the goalkeeper wasn't allowed to pick that up, that made a huge difference to the game of soccer. Now the game of soccer is battling with mm-hmm. VAR at the moment. Uh, but let's just see what the next shift is in Gaelic football because fundamentally I worry about what's happening down the, down the tiers. I don't worry about the top level. Yeah. That's been, in, you know, that's in good nick in many ways in terms of the conditioning and, and, uh, and performance. I think it's time to get the culture back on track again. Right, Damien, thank you for all of that. Uh, very insightful as always. And we'll check in with you soon. Bye, Marie. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Game on on 2FM. Uh, welcome back. The second half has started between United and Galatasaray. Keith Tracy is watching it for us. It is still 2-1. But how's it started, Keith? Yeah, Galatasaray again looking very dangerous going forward. Just hit the, the side net and did a ball. They're out on the right wing. They whip the ball across the front post and it's a lovely little timed run. He, he gets there first, but he just hits the side net and can't quite direct it towards goal. But this could still go easy way. Great game to watch again. It, it, it's not like your typical Champions League game where one team is trying to soak up pressure and, and, and hit the other. Both teams are really open going for it like a, like an FA Cup game back in the 90s, this one. <laughs> Good description. In the other early game, it is Sevilla 1 PSV Eindhoven nil. Now we are turning our attention to golf. Greg Allen is with us in studio to talk about Luke Donald who has been named the European Ryder Cup captain for the 2025 matches in New York. Good choice. Greg? Um, yeah, I, sh- I think we should hear from Luke because I tell you why. Um, it's his response, I think, to what was not that difficult a decision. The reason it wasn't that difficult a decision was because there was a clamour of players, prominent players, Shane Lowry and Rory McElroy among them, who basically said, you know, definitely you, you're the man to do it in New York. It's come about because so many of the candidates to be European Ryder Cup captain have defected to live. So you Ian Poulter, uh, obviously Henrik Stenson went and that's how actually Donald was made captain for Rome because Stenson was the original captain, he went to live and then Donald got that appointment about eight or nine months into into what was normally the two year period. Uh, so in many ways he was just literally by acclaim the man that everybody wanted as captain so the decision was down to Donald by the looks of things especially in the absence mm-hmm. of a lot of players who might have been captain like even Graham McDowell uh, Lee Westwood Ian Poulter as I said so uh, effectively it was Donald's decision and this is anyway what he said at, this, at the press conference today the, the moments we had in Rome and to be able to obviously have uh, the ability to, to go and, and possibly create some more history and be only the second European Ryder Cup captain to go back to back is very uh, appealing to me. And to be honest, when, you know, I was lifting that trophy uh, on Sunday and, and hearing the guys, you know, really the support they had for me, even back then, you know, I thought, I can't let the, can't let the lads down. And um, I've obviously done it twice as a player, winning away in, in the US. And it, it is difficult. You know, those those Ryder Cups weren't weren't easy. But, you know, you use the, the crowd's energy uh, to your advantage. We certainly did in Rome. And uh, 
Ryder Cup will be boisterous. Uh, it'll be loud uh, like it is every time in 2025. Uh, but, uh, you know, it'll be our job to try and quiet the crowd as much as possible with great play. So that's Luke Donald. Uh, obviously, he knows that it's going to be an intimidating atmosphere uh, because New York fans for the US Opens that have been staged at Bethpage have been more than vociferous. Mm-hmm. They borderline, you know, um, intimidating in what they say. And Wisconsin, for the last uh, Ryder Cup on American soil, was a very intimidating atmosphere. And that was the nice, polite people of Wisconsin. New York is a different level up from that. So it, cause it promises to be in this, you know, revived, if that's the right way of putting it, high tempo jingoism of, you know, American fans cheering for their team and to some degree as well, although not quite so jingoistic uh, European fans cheering for their team. It's become an increasingly attritional environment for the away team, uh, but especially in America. And the European team had a bad time in Wisconsin. There were no European fans in the crowd because of the pandemic. And uh, I think New York promises to be a very serious cauldron for the team. And Luke Donald goes there as a winning captain. So there's a lot of things that he knows how to do. And now he has to find out a way of neutralizing to some degree the effect of the the American crowd, which will be an intimidating atmosphere. Is it a good thing from a spectator point of view from, let's say, when you go, Greg, do do you like that environment? Does it take it away from it or add to it? You know, it's it's a change from what you get in golf. Uh, normally, the politeness uh, normally in, in golf is uh, there for to be heard and seen at the Masters at the Open Championship, which has very respectful crowds. U.S. Open crowds can be, you know, can be a bit salty at times uh, in their attitude towards uh, cheering for their man, and um, especially if it's a New Yorker, and then cheering against someone if they're not a New Yorker. And that's in a U.S. Open, mm-hmm. you know, which is a relatively civilised environment. Ryder Cup is a different thing altogether. It's tribal. It's one team against the other. It feeds into the uh, the crowds uh, who, you know, people in the crowd who be used to cheering for team sport. It feeds into that particular part of their psyche and thereby it creates a totally different atmosphere. I quite like a lot of it. I don't like uh, what I experienced in Wisconsin, which was like the wives and girlfriends mm-hmm. suffered abuse. Uh, European wives and girlfriends suffered, you know, literally, you know, random abuse and a lot of stuff went on, uh, which was borderline. And, you know, there have been bad ones before. Brookline back in 1999, like this is nothing new. So I think the one in 2025 on Long Island in Bethpage will set a bar for intimidation of the opposition. But, you know, it's different, as I keep saying, and I think it's good for golf. It brings it into a domain which... uh, takes it across the boundary of golf and into the general sports domain in terms of how people's interest. I think people who are interested in general sport get interested in the Ryder Cup probably because of that element. Because mm, it has that real team sport feel yeah. to it when you're watching it. Uh, what about his opposite number? Who do you think it's going to be? Um, I like There's a talk about Tiger, uh, possibly, but I think Tiger is going to play next year something like six or seven events. And if Tiger plays well in six or seven events, it looks like the... Um, operation on his ankle has been very successful he says he's got no pain in his ankle area but he now has to build up other areas of his leg which are now taking the brunt mm-hmm. of what all that metal in his ankle is is doing which is basically putting more pressure on his knees and so he but you can build muscle in your knee and around your knee and in your thighs area you can't really do anything about an ankle like there's not that much muscle material down there so in actually stabilizing his ankle he should be able to play six or seven events this year and a bit like ben hogan in 1953 who, after his car crash in '49, had a very limited ability to play golf. 
played six tournaments, won five of them, and three of them were majors. He won all three majors in 1953. And I think Tiger sees himself as a latter-day Ben Hogan. So I think Tiger intends to be a player in, uh, in 2025 when he'll be, what, uh, just short of his 50th birthday. Uh, and I think he still believes he can do that. Physically, he's in brilliant shape. Otherwise, apart from all the metal in his body, from his knees to his uh, ankles and bits in his back. Um, <laughs> but I think 2027 20, and a dare, you never okay. know. That might be the one when he's 51 years yeah. of age. I'd say he'd like that one as well. Um, Greg, thank you so much for all of that. Keith? Something happening by the looks of it. Yeah, it's 3-1 to Manchester United. It's a really good move again. It's um, Anthony comes in off the, the right wing, drives at Angelino, the left back for Galatasaray, gets Wan-Bissaka on the overlap and he fizzes it across the six-yard box. And there's Scott McTominay, the boy who scored so many goals for Manchester United and Scotland over the last couple of months, to, to put it in at the near post and 3-1 to Manchester United. Just got a little bit more comfortable. They're looking so much better now, aren't they, Keith? They do. Going forward, they look really good, Marie, but there's big, big question marks over them defensively. In, in, uh, in the last four Champions League games, they've conceded 11 goals, so I think when they start meeting the elite teams in, in, in the Champions League, they will come undone. Okay. Uh, Keith Tracy, thank you so much for all of that. Greg Allen, thank yeah, you. We should mention one thing. Oh, I yes. forgot to say, Tiger Woods is actually playing golf this week. Oh, yes, in of the course, Hero in World the Hero, Challenge. yeah. So, uh, it, it, by the looks of the previews of that, it looks like he's the only player playing in the field because nobody else is getting a mention other than the fact that some of the best <laughs> players in the world are in that field, like Victor Hovland and uh, the return of uh, Zalatoris and Scotty Scheffler, the world number one. But they don't matter because Tiger's playing. Well, that's the effect he has. Greg, you might come back next week and report on how he got on, how he's looking, how he's moving how the ankle is where he looks like that uh, that uh, pressure from the ankle where that's moved to all that sort of stuff uh, looking forward to hear it uh, thank you so much to both of you for coming in that is all we have time for Betty De Silva is up next